Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. Today with us, we have Carla Lewis and Chrissy Newman. And Miss Carla, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm really excited to have Chrissy here and to hear all about her uh, recent experiences in the Bahamas and just all the stuff she's involved with. Outstanding. And Chrissy Newman, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, wow. Hi. Good morning. Um, Chrissy Newman. I am found, co-founder of Rescue Ranch in Statesville, North Carolina, and proud ASAR disaster responder working with Eric and Carla in Code 3. Yeah, and Chrissy joined us several years ago, has been training, oh gosh, when I first met Chrissy, it's been probably five, six years ago, and, and she was in swift water class with us, and she caught the bug to come out and uh, experience the disaster side of things, and so she's been out with us several times, uh, and today we're going to kind of capture uh, some of your highlights uh, in everything that you're doing, because in the animal welfare world, everything from education to working with veterinarians, to international work. There's just so much there that I think the listeners would be interested in to get that perspective and also hopefully uh, bring awareness to some of those projects. One of the biggest projects you started with right off the bat, um, can you tell us about Rescue Ranch? Sure. Um, we have a animal education facility at the heart of Statesville and we bring in kids and we teach them about animals, earth, the environment, it's kind of a fun place for all of the kids to come out and get hands-on experiences while we are teaching them some of the things that they're learning in school with their core curriculum standards. So it's a it's kind of like fun field trips, birthday parties. Right now we have like a big fall event that we do with hay rides. And we have hay art and animal presentations and we have a 10,000 square foot all-inclusive playground for kids of all abilities to play together. So it's kind of like a nice place for everybody to come out, get together, and learn about respecting animals and the environment. So what's the website that people can find more information at, on Rescue Ranch? Um, they can find us on rescueranch.com. Rescueranch.com. You guys have a Facebook page? We do. Yes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And do you have some ambassador animals that are really popular over at Rescue Ranch? I think a lot of the favorites are, um, we have a Holstein steer named Otis who likes to give big slobber kisses. Um, I think it depends on the kids. Boys typically tend to like the lizards and snakes. Um, girls are more towards the bunny rabbits. And we have a few new birds. We have an umbrella cockatoo named Loverboy who is quite a character. And then we've got um, an African gray named Jordy. So uh, there's a quite a quite a few animals. I think we're up to about 85, but they don't let me answer the phone there anymore because we would have way too many. So do you guys ad adopt out animals, or are these mostly just rescues that come from um, situations where they needed help? These are all animals that came from situations that needed help. So when we bring them into our programs, we temperament test them, put a lot of work into making sure that they're healthy and um, they get used to being handled, and then we introduce them into our programming, and they stay there for life. We don't adopt anything out at this point. We are working on plans right now to do an adoption center where we will take in animals and adopt them back out. But right now, because of the situation a lot of these animals are coming from, we decided that it'd just be best that they stay at their forever home with the ranch. That's great. 
And that is just an outstanding facility. We've been there several times and, and each time we come, there are school buses parked everywhere. You just see kids that, that may not have the ability um, to be exposed to that all the time, just go out and be fascinated uh, with those animals and the project. So uh, just an outstanding community resource there. If you get a chance, uh, definitely look up the Rescue Ranch uh, online and, and on social media and follow those because uh, Instagram is pretty fun to watch as those ambassador animals are, are brought forth uh, occasionally. So, Chrissy, along with Rescue Ranch, I know you're not there all the time. Uh, what other projects are you working on in the in the animal world? Uh, well, I get to do disaster response with, with you guys, which is always a lot of fun. And um, International Fund for Animal Welfare worked with them quite a bit on some of their um, fun. I shouldn't say fun because it's not. I mean, it's fun, but it's also a lot of work and kind of a heartbreaking situation, but uh, just going in, I just got back from the Bahamas a few weeks ago, um, deployed with them to Abaco to do dry land search and rescue and, and shelter in place. Um, that was just kind of heartbreaking. We did, we did see a lot of uh, sad cases and the amount of destruction was, was a little overwhelming, but uh, I felt like we've done a good job and continue to do a good job with that. So um, just enjoy working with a lot of the different groups that are in animal welfare and, and getting to know some people and, and creating a bigger network of how we can all help one another and learn from, from everything as we go. Um, and through what I've done with you guys and the AZA and getting to work with some of the, the zoos and what they're doing and how their programming is expanding, it's been, it's been a lot of fun and very exciting. Yeah, and you bring up a lot of great topics there, one being uh, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. You'll commonly hear us uh, term it the acronym of IFAW, and uh, they are an outstanding partner uh, on for the National Animal Rescue and Sheltering Coalition. And if you guys get a chance to check out that website, is it's called thenarsc.org, and it's the N-A-R-S-C.org. And you can see the other national organizations, including Code 3, and soon to be adding ASAR Training and Response uh, to that coalition where these national partners have a code of conduct that they work with emergency management, both at federal, state, uh, regional, local levels. And that code of conduct says these organizations are professional. They don't self-deploy. They come in when requested by emergency management and they can do everything pro from providing boots on the ground field services, uh, like what Chrissy was able to do when she went to the Bahamas. And they can also provide management level uh, staff that considered an emergency operations center and help negotiate um, and navigate through what resources need to come in and what resources need to be staged until they're, they're necessary. And IFA took the lead. Uh, they had a, a MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, with the Bahama government. And after Dorian hit, they were the acknowledged lead um, to help the Bahama Humane Society uh, coming in with outside resources. So many of the other national players like American Humane um, and other network partners were able to go in underneath IFA's leadership uh, and provide relief efforts. 
And it's really important to work with organizations like that to make sure that we're doing things the right way. And you'll hear that, you know, over and over in our podcast that there is a place for everybody. Even if you are starting your own team, you've got a big heart, you're really excited. Self-deploying usually causes more issues for tracking animals, reunification with animals and providing proper care um, than if you would just work within the guided system. So we continue to refine some of those techniques and, and really look at, at how we can apply them in catastrophic situations. And Chrissy, really the Bahamas was a catastrophic situation where you walked into a zero resource environment. So when you got the request to deploy into assist IFAW, you fly over and when you arrive, <laughs> do you have power, water, toilets? What, what was it like when you arrived down there? It actually was quite interesting because I, I usually get the call and I'm like, yeah, right away. I'm like, okay, how long do you need me for? Of course I will do it. And I didn't even have any other details other than it was zero resources. So I packed like everything I thought I was going to need for zero resources. So when we flew in, nobody really had any details. I didn't even know who I was meeting or where I was going. I just knew I needed to be at the airport at a certain time. So I get down there, get out of customs, and I'm like, oh, okay, here's a group. We've got IFAW shirts on. I'm like, where are we headed? And they're like, we're not sure. <laughs> so finally, we got the message to go to a hotel. And um, we pull into the hotel and we're like, oh my gosh, we're staying in a hotel tonight. This is okay. I can handle this <laughs> so much for the no resources. But it was basically, we had to go through some, some meetings about what we were about to experience. And because we were going into another part of an island that had zero resources, we were limited on how we could get there. So we ended up taking planes and helicopters over to the island with supplies and we were only allowed to take one bag. So literally my book bag was what I lived out of for a week. I had a couple um, pairs of pants and a couple shirts and my toiletry bag and off we went. So it was uh, it was very interesting um, to fly in and just see the mass devastation for so wide. I mean, if you picture an F5 tornado for 20 miles, that's what this island looked like. It just everywhere you turned, it looked like a bulldozer had just completely come through and demolished things. Tankers on their sides and boats up where they're not supposed to be on dry land now. And just everybody and everything on the island completely displaced. Um, so it was, it was quite the experience. And one thing I always think I take with me from any trip that I've done is just the difference in the devastation, but the, overwhelming support that the community has for each other and trying to rebuild and trying to help all of the people there that are on the island, trying to help them um, just go through everything because these people, I mean, they've just lost their houses. They might've lost family members. They've lost animals. So just being able to go in and provide a little bit of help um, makes me feel better. And we did run into situations. You mentioned um, the self-deployers. The problem we were encountering down there was other organizations coming in by boat or by plane and picking up dogs thinking that they were either strays or um, displaced and needed to be pulled. But down there, because of the culture, they had a lot of community dogs. So although it didn't belong in somebody's home, that dog was actually cared for by people in the community. So we were getting a lot of people coming to us asking where certain dogs had disappeared to. And we didn't have an answer because when we go into homes or we go into communities, every 
animal we pull gets photographed, numbered, um, we, we mark on the building um, with notification on where that animal was found, what we had, how they could contact us if they knew of the animal's owners, um, just to make sure that, you know, they knew where these animals were going and that these animals were being cared for if we had taken one accidentally. Well, not everybody was doing that. So we'd go into these locations and people were like, well, we're looking for this animal. Well, somebody had already taken it, flown it back to the U.S. and consider that it was a stray animal. And here are these people that have lost everything and that only had those animals left were out the animals. So I know people try and help, but the, I think going through the training and just going through these experiences really helps you understand why it's so important and why it's so important to not self-deploy because you end up doing more harm than good. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because, you know, we talk in all of our classes, we try to prepare people for those types of things. We try to explain, you know, other cultures have different ways of um, dealing with community animals and, you know, removing them may not be the best situation. And, you know, people have good hearts, big hearts, but it's not always in the best place. And I think when you get the training and you go through the things that we go through to get our credentials, um, you really understand that process a lot better. Oh, I, I was going to say, to add to that, um, if, you, if you look at what we did with the flood response in Florence, um, the amount of toxins in the water and just the way the water moves and, and you're out on boats, we're in full safety gear to make sure that when we're jumping in the water, we're safe, we're keeping our bodies safe. Um, but then you see other people that are in shorts and a T-shirt with their flip-flops trying to pull animals out of houses and off boats. And I don't think people really understand. Sometimes they're like, oh, it's just flood water. But there's a lot of nasty stuff in the flood water, and people can get seriously injured with the amount of debris. I think Eric was driving the boat one time, and we hit something. And he's like, what was that? I said, I think it was a Volkswagen. Because you're, <laughs> you're up over, you know, the top of a car and you don't even see it because that's how high these waters are. So if you're not trained and you don't really understand what else could be in that water, you can end up posing a risk. And then you're the one needing saving and rescuing from the people that are out there trained to do it. And they have to stop doing what they're doing to come help somebody because they just they they wanted to help but really shouldn't have been out there. Absolutely. And, you know, a big shout out to the local Humane Society of Grand Bahamas. They had workers that were affected and their dedicated staff stayed through the storm, worked with these animals the best they could. And then after it was all over, continued work with, again, some of the big national organizations like Humane Society of the United States, ASPCA, um, Wings of Rescue. I mean, there's so many organizations that we could talk about uh, that provided evacuation, proper evacuation and transportation for these animals so they had another chance at adoption and life here in the United States. So, um, you know, thank you for your efforts getting out there. And we're going to try to, as we go on uh, with these podcasts, we're going to have ASAR stories from the field where we will have Chrissy back on to kind of talk about some of the events during Hurricane Florence and other areas where you really get the first responder perspective. Uh, because that's one of the biggest questions we have when we're out in training what do I need to bring? What do I expect when I arrive? And a lot of it is kind of working your way through the mass chaos and hurry up and wait until it's time to go. And then when it is time to act, then you're 
in it hot and heavy. And a lot of people don't understand not only the physical strain, but also the mental strain of it all, uh, especially as you start to disengage and there's so much left to do in the recovery efforts. Um, Chrissy, as we go forward here, uh, challenges that you saw in your deployment, is there one or two that really stand out that, that was a challenge not only for locals, but maybe for any of the national players? Oh, I think one of the biggest challenges is on that deployment, especially was we were on an island. So we were limited on what resources were coming in and out. So if you had um, a need for crates or even paper towels, paper towels were a hot commodity my first few days there. I mean, there are necessity for cleaning out and sanitizing and, and trying to, to keep your, we, we set up, everybody knows, we set up like a makeshift shelter. So prior to me getting down, the team that had deployed took, um, worked with the local um, Bohemian Humane Society, and they took uh, a building and basically set up what crates they had, tried to bring in supplies, and we arranged the shelter in a way where we only could take in so many animals per shift because we were at the mercy of Wings of Rescue did a phenomenal job helping us get animals in and off the island, but they were a plane. So they brought supplies in. You could only put so many dogs in that plane to send them back to NASA. Um, so I would just say the supply chain on that was our biggest challenge because we needed certain supplies, but if they didn't have room for them on the plane to bring them in, they waited until the next shift came and we couldn't send as many animals out as we had wanted because we had to wait on a plane and you didn't want them just sitting in cages and, you know, when they were, they were out unless they were critically injured. So I think that was probably one of our biggest challenges. And then, uh, well, I mean, you kind of expect it when you go into zero resources that you're not going to shower or have running water, but you forget the little things that you take for granted every single day, like being able to brush your teeth with the water out of the faucet and different things like <laughs> washing your face. Um, I did have a, a puppy that was sick that we thought possibly could have had parvo um, poop down the side of my shirt mm -hmm. <laughs> as I was holding it for the vet check. And then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm down a shirt now. <laughs> and I only had two. So uh, those, those kind of things are challenges, but they come with the territory. I think each disaster we respond to has a different set of challenges, and there's always something to be learned from them. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of people romanticize, you know, what we do when we're out there. And, um, and yeah, it's really neat to do some of those things and to, to have those experiences. But when you're on day, you know, four of not having a hot meal, sometimes it, it is very trying on you. So I think the more, the more we can prepare our responders for those types of situations, the, the better. And for our listeners, we will have a podcast dedicated to uh, things that you can expect in the field in different environments. <laughs> it will be one of the more enlightening podcasts as we talk about bodily functions and how people react to heat. Uh, we'll actually go through about six different fungal creams to talk about what's best <laughs> in what application. Uh, but uh, guaranteed, if you work on a search and rescue team, you got to have some of those conversations um, just to let people know what to expect if they've never been out there. And I've been doing this for almost 20 years and I think I've been afflicted by almost anything and everything um, because I was so driven to finish the mission. I didn't take care of myself 
And I, I've learned over the years to slow down and, and try to take care of, of personal issues uh, so I can actually affect what's going on out in the field a little bit better. Uh, Chrissy, this has been great. Any parting advice for anyone wanting to start up helping in disaster response? I would just sign up and take some classes. Um, and you don't really know what your interest level might be. You might not think that you want to do soap water, but it always helps to take a class because you never know what you're going in to get into. I, uh, I always tease that I will not do ice rescue, but at some point I will probably <laughs> go get certified in it just to have that skill set. But I, I think that's the biggest thing is just go out and get tra trained, find, find something in your local area and, and work within the means of the people that are trained to do it and are credentialed to do it. So you make sure that you're doing the right thing. And if, if that's not your thing and you still want to help, there's other ways that you can support, whether it's supply drives or transportation, um, just being a voice on social media. So just getting involved with the right organizations and, and trying to do it the right way, I, I would say would be the best suggestion. And you hit so many great points there, you know, working that local boots on the ground capacity is what we're really striving for and understanding that, yes, you can go out and, and work in a disaster environment, but those people can't work unless that support chain is in place. If we don't have people for transport, if we don't have people for shelter, if we don't have the public supporting those shelters, if we don't have adoptions going on for animals that are healthy that can go to new families, um, if we don't have our logistics supply chains in place, none of that other field activity can function efficiently. So there really is a place for everybody in this disaster response, and we hope to bring transparency and avenues that people can participate, uh, along with working with our emergency management in those structures um, and getting those emergency support functions, the resources they need. Miss Carla, anything yeah. else? No, it's just great. Chrissy, we're so glad you were here today and talking to us. Uh, great stuff. I'm excited to see you out in the field again. Thank you. It, um, it was an honor to be invited. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Check us out on our Facebook page, ASAR Training Response, Instagram, hashtag ASAR Training. You can find us on Twitter. Um, keep track as we continue with our podcast series, and we'll start looking at interviews with some of our instructors, talking about the new classes coming up for 2020 as we expand our ASAR teaching platform. We're also going to have several responders on to go back and capture some of our stories from the field and help folks understand what uh, they may need to do to be part of this uh, disaster response function in, in some way. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you later.